The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. There are so many challenges involved in the college process, including choosing the right college, planning a payment strategy, creating a high school plan, and much more. The team of experts from College Coach are here to help you find some, if not all, of the answers you need. Now, here is your host, Elizabeth Heaton. Good afternoon, everybody. Welcome to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. It is, I often comment on the weather just because, I don't know, it always is, um, it's, I guess, pretty important to me, and it's raining outside. It's a terrible day. Um, unfortunately, hopefully you're having a great day. Um, it is time to finalize your decision. The May 1 date for giving colleges your apply is looming, and we're going to be talking about hopefully some things that will uh, help with that a little bit a little later in the show when we answer listener questions. Um, for those of you who maybe are a little disappointed, uh, particularly if you applied to Ivies or highly selective schools, or for those of you who are thinking about doing so, um, we did a show back in July that was super popular about evaluating your chances. You know, how do I evaluate my chances uh, at an Ivy or a similarly selective school? And so I've actually started a blog series on the Huffington Post, um, and the first um, blog went up last Thursday, and it's there right now, and the title is Who Gets Into Harvard? Uh, and the second uh, blog is going to be going up today. Actually, when I'm done with the show, I'm going to be posting it. So if you're interested in that, check it out. It's on the Huffington Post. You can search for my name, Elizabeth Heaton, uh, and you should find it. Um, we have a lot of listener questions. We're going to get to those in just a bit. But first, um, we started a series uh, a few months ago uh, looking, taking a closer look at how admissions is done at a variety of different institutions, namely the ones where we worked. And today, we're going to continue that series um, with a look into the University of Pennsylvania, which is where I worked. Um, but it would be boring just to listen to me talk. So joining me is my current and former colleague, Sai Samboon, who worked with me in undergraduate admissions at Penn and now works with me here at College Coach. Hi, Sai. Hi, Beth. Thanks for having how are me you? on the show. Absolutely. Well, thank you. And All right, great. Just like, just like how it is for you, it is rainy and awful here in New York. So I'm with yes. you on the weather. Yeah, the weather is lousy, but it's supposed to get sunny, and hopefully everyone oh, who's listening, not today, of course, but in a couple of days, but hopefully everyone who's listening is um, experiencing much nicer weather than we are, or hopefully yeah. we all will soon. Um, so what, uh, what we're trying to do with this series is really try a little bit to demystify what goes on behind the scenes. I know um, when I applied to college, you sort of sent out your applications and you know, a few months later, you got an answer. And it still largely happens that way, although there's a lot more media out there about it. Um, but when people find out 
that I used to work at Penn or find out what I currently do, they're always fascinated with the process. And so I thought that we could kind of help our listeners understand the process a little bit better um, in terms of how we did it at Penn. So my first question, my first question for you is, um, so back in reading season, uh, you and I used to read about 30 files a day. When you opened up that first file, what was the first thing uh, that you were looking at uh, when you read the file? Yeah. So while everything was always very holistic and comprehensive, right, and while we do look at students as individuals and not just walking scores or walking sure. curricula, um, the academic component is the most important. Um, and that was always the first thing that I would look at. I would look at the transcripts, uh, any standardized testing, and the secondary school report. I would see, okay, did the student really maximize his or her academic experience at their school? Um, and, of course, that changes, right? So some schools will offer a bonanza of AP classes, but they're only limiting students to taking five, for example. Mm-hmm. Or some schools don't offer any AP or IB designated classes, but they do have higher-level classes, so it's up to us the admissions officers to understand what's available at the school and did the student maximize the opportunities that were given to them. So that would be the first thing that I would look at would be the uh, quantitative factors in the application. And just to jump in, so you may be wondering, listeners may be wondering, you know, how do you know what each school offers? And so Mm -hmm. what every school is sending to Penn and to other colleges um, that students are applying to is something called a profile. And you can find the profile often on your school's website. Um, If you don't see it there, you could ask your guidance counselor to give you a copy, and that's generally updated every year. And the profile is going to tell us things like how many AP classes were offered at that school, or do they even offer them? Is it instead a full international baccalaureate program, or is there some other type of program available at the school? Um, How many students go to that school? What kind of environment, right? Is it urban? Is it suburban? Is it rural? Um, what percentage of the senior class goes on to four-year colleges? Um, that was always something big that we noted on the mm-hmm. reader rating card. Because in all of this information, you may be wondering why is that even important, but it gives it provides context. You know, the the experience at a high school may be very different for a student going to an an inner city school with 2,000 students versus attending a school that's in a very rural area where maybe you have you know, I don't know, 75 students in the senior class, and that's it. Right. So, um, so those were all things that we were absolutely paying attention to. Um, you mentioned the secondary school report. Um, mm-hmm. And what do, what do you mean by that? And, and help our listeners understand a little bit more about that piece. Sure, sure. So absolutely. So that is the transcript. That is the academic record for all of four years in the high school, right? So that will give yep. us an information about, okay, so each year – did the student take the five core courses, the English classes, social science, mathematics, natural sciences, um, and foreign languages? And then what electives did the student take as well? So different schools will call their classes um, different names, but generally we'll understand that, you know, this is a bio class, even if it isn't specifically designated as 
AP biology or, you know, bio, whatever, um, yep. biological basis of behavior, for example. Some schools will offer that as a, as a higher level bio class in the junior year. So that is the secondary school report. But I love what you said, Beth, about the context, because that's really, really important. Sometimes I speak with families who ask, well, you know, um, what if the school doesn't offer APs? Does this look badly on the student? And that's just simply not the case at all because a smaller rural school may have a much more limited curriculum, but as long as the student has really taken advantage of what's offered to them, that's fantastic, and that's what we want to see. Right, right. What, where the goal was, are you maximizing the opportunities available to you? So you can't right. maximize something that isn't available to you, but <laughs> right. you can have things available to you that you're not taking advantage of, and I think mm-hmm. that's key. Um, and I think the other thing that I would mention here is that we're, as you read, you're assessing every element, and so you are making an assessment of the rigor of the curriculum. The counselor at the school provides an assessment. We ask them is this, you know, how rigorous is this curriculum? But I didn't always agree with the counselor's assessment. Um, So they might say, oh, the students in the most rigorous curriculum available. But then I would look and I would notice, well, but this student opted not to do foreign language in the senior year. And they could have because there was a, a next level class available to them. Or, you know, maybe they only took a couple of honors classes each year. And in their senior year, they had one AP, but I know that there were a lot more available. Um, So then I would probably not mark that as most rigorous available and give it a slightly different assessment because we were never just looking at grades. We were also always looking at, like you mentioned, which courses did the student choose to take? Um, So it was as much about what they took as how they did in those, um, in those courses. Um, and then we were also evaluating the other pieces, right? So the, um, the te- the, we were looking at a list of what the student was involved in extracurricularly, mm-hmm. and we were assessing that. And um, in all cases, we were assigning a numerical value to each of these, um, each of these elements that helped to kind of categorize it when you were in committee. So right. you could say, you know, right, while the student is super, um, you could see from the academic rating, this is a very... Um, accomplished student, but if you mm-hmm. look at the rating assigned to the extracurriculars, you can see that eh, they really weren't super involved, or is there isn't anything here that's um, we're seeing as super exciting as really adding to the class, things like that. Right, um, absolutely, and those are all the qualitative aspects that we look for that are extremely important. That I think a lot of families sometimes think it's just about testing or yes. the transcript, right? Um, But yeah, I mean, after the academic component, I would absolutely look at extracurricular um, activities and see, okay, well, who is the student? Who is the student in the context of the school? Is she a leader? Is she an athlete? Is she a dancer? Is she involved in community service? Is she involved with the scouts? Um, Does she volunteer inside and outside the classroom, right? Are there activities that take place completely off campus? Maybe someone is an equestrian. Um, or is a nationally ranked athlete, or is attending uh, the School of American Ballet or Boston Ballet, for example. So there are lots of things that paint a picture of who the student is, and the extracurricular profile is a really great um, way to look into that. And that is usually backed up by the secondary school report, too, right? Because the guidance counselor will say, oh, well, this person not only is in all these classes, but is also, you know, definitely a 
a personality on campus. Maybe right. they're in student government, or maybe they're a champion debater, or you know, maybe maybe they're involved with a lot of different things, but um, mm-hmm. haven't achieved a certain level of leadership, which is totally fine as well because we need all types of students, right? Right. But yep. That that gives us a really um, nice picture of who the student is in the context of the school community. Right. And then from there, you mentioned the, the counselor is going to do a recommendation. We, Penn always required two teacher recommendations, so we'd be looking at those. Um, sometimes students would submit extra letters of recommendation. Just a shout out here mm-hmm. to not overdoing that. I really feel <laughs> strongly, based on my time yeah. at Penn, that you shouldn't be more than one. Um, and truthfully, if there were five extra letters of rec in there, I was noting that the student went overboard and I was only Mm going to read one of them. So it was sort of whichever one was on top, that's what I'm reading. Um, and so, you know, you really, you want to give them, we wanted what we asked for and we really didn't want a lot of extra stuff. Um, so in the interest, in the interest of shining a light on the rest of the process. So we would go through the whole thing, you know, we take notes on every piece. We would look at the essays and take notes on those. Um, and then we would, I would, um, do an overall sort of my general leaning. So I was either leaning towards admit or it was kind of unclear. Um, so I wasn't sure if it was admit and, but I might say something like unclear leaning away or unclear, you know, I, I, this is interesting, leaning towards admit. And then you could read an application deny. Um, and that was not, though, the decision, right? So you, mm-hmm. you and I were reading, and now Penn reads. Um, they do this in teams of two. Um, mm-hmm. But that's just the first step in sort of, or I guess the second step, right? You read the file, you yeah. assign an overall assessment, um, and then what happens? Well, the most important thing is that no one person makes the decision, right? Because mm-hmm. ultimately, if there is a leaning uh, accept or an unclear, it goes to a committee. Now, with Penn being such an amazing school with so many different programs, it'll also depend where that committee goes to. So if you and I are reading an application for the Wharton School of Business, um, we're the first readers, and then perhaps it goes to committee, then it's presented to someone from the Wharton School and then the chair of the committee. So there are several people that are involved in the assessment process, so it's never just one person. Um, right. if, it's, if it's a joint degree program, so for example, if it's Huntsman, which is International Studies and Business, then uh, the regional director reads first, so whoever is in charge of the region where the student is from will read it. Um, it will go through a second read through a representative from one of these committees uh, or one of these joint degree programs, and then it's presented to the committee. So right. it is a very involved and very comprehensive process altogether. Although I would say this, that when in our initial assessment of that joint degree application, um, mm-hmm. if I knew for sure the student was not going to be a competitive candidate, then I sent that student right away to their single degree committee. So That's true. It, Right. It wasn't going to get that second yeah. read if you were um, sure, but it would get the second read. And the second person might say, nope, this isn't going to cut it. Let's, right. um, you know, let's just send this to single degree. So not every single person who applies to a joint degree program necessarily goes to that joint degree committee or didn't at the time. And I think the point that we're making here that I'm hoping we can make here is just that those programs are super selective. Penn is selective already. And then those programs mm-hmm. are really selective and they really are paying attention to the fit 
of the of the application for um, for the specific program the student is applying to. And if the feel is the fit is really better in the single degree, then it's just going to go right there, and it's not even going to go to that um, that special separate committee. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so. Uh, the one other thing I do uh, want to say is admit and applications read admit and unclear do go to committee. However, some of the applications read deny also um, are going to committee, right? So there's um, there's what's called administrative committee where another person reviews the applications read deny that are under a certain um, academic rating, so below a certain academic rating, and they just double check to make sure that everything looks fine, and then the application is in fact denied. But if a student is above a certain academic rating, then that that application is going to go to committee as well. So um, you know the the um, the your point that you made earlier in terms of it's never just one person making a decision is true regardless of whether you were talking about the most qualified applicant or arguably the least qualified applicant. Right. It is never just one person, right? Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. And just to dovetail that as well, every applicant is read, every single yes. one. Um, yes. And that's really important because I feel like there are sometimes questions about cutoffs, right? And, well, you know, yep. I don't know if she's going to make the cutoff. Is she even going to go to committee? Well, the truth is we all read all of them. We, we want to honor the fact that our students have spent a lot of time submitting their applications to the school. So that is absolutely the case. Right. I mean, and there was a way you had to fill out the reader rating card and now it's done online, but you are taking notes on every element that is required of every application and to not do so would be to immediately have the application returned to you to say, hey, you didn't do a full read on this. Um, Because Mm -hmm. like we just mentioned, even those applications that aren't necessarily academically super strong are still going to be reviewed before they are fully, you know, denied. So there is always someone making sure that you actually did an accurate and complete read. So, yeah, if that's something we could dispel here today, the idea that, you know, that not all these files are getting read and that you see one thing and you're immediately saying, oh, never mind. Right. Because we were reading for reasons to admit, not for reasons to deny. And I think that's a really a key distinction of the process, not only at Penn, but at all um, really all colleges, you're hoping to admit a class. You're not hoping to right. deny a class, right? right. Exactly. So, exactly. Yeah. We're hoping that it yeah. works out. That's, that's the goal. Yes. Exactly. That's exactly right. Um, all right. So I'm, I think that kind of covers it. I mean, we, we covered it in about 15 minutes and mm-hmm. of course I'm sure our listeners have lots and lots of questions um, and you can always submit those questions to us and we can do our best to answer them. Anything that we didn't touch on, Mungsai, that you um, thought, geez, I hope that Beth asked me about this or I want to make sure I remember to say this. I just can't think if we've forgotten anything. Hmm. Let me just say for a second that the essays are crucial. You know, they yes. are really the only time where the student's voice is truly heard in the application process. I mean, that is your voice. That is the time where we get to know who you are. And so a lot of time and effort must be spent on these essays because that's the only time we actually hear you. Um, right. We're getting information from your teachers, from your guidance counselor, right? We see your academic profile and your extracurriculars. But when you're telling us who you are, that's who your essays. So a lot of time um, from the admissions perspective is placed on the essays as well, really uh, looking to see what is your passion, who are you, you know, where do you fit 
And do you hopefully fit at Penn or at any school? Yep, absolutely. Monks, I thanks so much for um, joining me today. I really appreciate it. I hope our listeners did too. Um, We're going to a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to be answering your questions. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says, yes, Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. Do the adventures of Indiana Jones leave you curious about this exotic and unusual profession? If so, don't miss Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. You'll learn about forensics, ancient civilizations, and human origins. Listen to Dr. Schuldenrein and colleagues discuss their excavations and related archaeological topics, ranging from the unique to the sublime, and yes, even the mundane. Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology, live Wednesday, 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific Time, on Voice America Variety. Where are you getting your advice on buying, selling, or maintaining your most important asset, your home? Is it from a reality show on cable TV, a comparison website, or are you just flying by the seat of your pants and gut instinct? Stop now before you make another move. Tune into Real Real Estate Today with host and realtor Deb Tomorrow. You can't afford to play guesswork when it comes to your new or existing home. Listen every Tuesday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific, on Voice America Variety. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You are listening to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. I am joined, as I frequently am, by my colleague and college finance expert, Kathy Ruby, who's a former Dean of Student Financial Aid at St. Olaf's College. Um, And we're answering your questions. You send us lots of questions, and we try to give you lots of answers. Hi, Kathy. Hi, Beth. How are you doing today? I'm good. All right. Well, we have a lot, so let's just dive right in. All right. We'll start with a question for you. So Daniel asks, um, 
You talked about appealing an admissions decision on a recent show. The school that denied my daughter doesn't have a formal appeals process. So what do we do in that situation? So you are right, Daniel. We did talk about appeals, although it was fairly rushed and at the end of the segment. So I appreciate you asking this question. Um, Not every school has an appeals process. And if they don't have an appeals process, the bad news is that really you're not going to be most likely successful in appealing a decision. You can always ask, but I think you need to be prepared to hear no. But before you even do that, uh, my advice would be to think about what is the grounds for an appeal? So we're just disappointed and we think she should have gotten in is not grounds for an appeal. If you feel like there was information that you just learned they didn't have because maybe somehow a transcript never got sent or you just got a notice in the mail that the file was incomplete um, and you hadn't heard about that and it turned out it was really a snafu on their end and they did have everything, there really has to be a reason why there mm-hmm. might be an appeal. Um, so you could call and say, we just found out that this is listed as incomplete and yet we have confirmation that you have everything. Can you just check to see if this decision was based on an incomplete file or um, if it was actually based on the file being read? So in that case, what you're wondering is if, um, you know, if there was just a genuine mistake that was made. Mm-hmm. At a school, you know, at a school that has, doesn't have a formal appeals process, perhaps there might have been a mistake made and there might be um, some kind of recourse. I will tell you that in my experience, I have never had a student successfully um, appeal or a denial at a school that didn't have a process for it. Mm-hmm. Um, if a school has a process, they are going to list that right on their website. Um, and they'll tell you exactly what you need to do in order to appeal your decision. And they'll be very clear about what would can be considered as grounds for an appeal. Um, you know, and the last thing I want to say about this is simply that um, colleges spend a lot of time rendering their decisions. Mm-hmm. And when they send them out, you know, they generally feel like these are the right decisions. So, again, appealing is infrequently successful. So, um, I hope that your daughter has some great choices, Daniel. I know it's disappointing to hear no, um, but uh, I wish you luck. I wish her luck. And um, if you do register an appeal, who knows? Maybe you could be one of the exceptions to the rule. (laughs) You have to make a good case. Yep, you do. All right. So, Kathy, Allie writes to us and asks this. Is it true that cash in the child's name and cash in checking accounts and savings accounts work against you more than any other family funds in getting aid. Do you have any suggestions as far as which accounts need to be lowest? Interesting. Okay, that's a great question. Um, And it's sort of got many parts, but let's first step back and and define what she's talking about. So I think what she's talking about is the calculation of the expected family contribution. And that is calculated using a federal formula. um, And they collect information about parent income and student income and then parent-owned assets and student-owned assets. um, And then they calculate how much the family is able to pay. So I think what she's asking is, um, is it true that cash in the child's name, so in other words, accounts that are owned by the student um, work against you more than any other family friends, funds? 
mm-hmm. the answer to that is yes. If it's in the student's name, um, often called a custodial account or, quite frankly, just a savings account that the student has, um, that does count more than other family funds. But then the second part where she asks about cash in checking accounts and savings accounts, um, it doesn't really matter what they're in. Um, what form of savings it is, it, what matters most is whose name it's in. Mm-hmm. So student assets are assessed at 20%. And essentially the idea is this person is going to college, they're a dependent student, so most of their savings should be going to college and we're going to divide it out roughly over four or five years essentially is what's happening there. So if you had um, if you had 50, you know, well, let's use $100,000 saved in your student's name, um, that would create a contribution of $20,000, which isn't great. Um, but if that money were in, a, in the parent's name, then it would only be assessed at 3 to 6%. Oh, wow. So yeah. a much lower number, yeah. And so just to clarify, 529 plans, whether they're owned by the student or the parent, um, they're, they are considered parent assets. So people are sometimes confused about 529 plans because you name the student as a beneficiary, but those are considered sure. parent assets. So those are a good thing. Okay. Got so, it. She's right. All right. Yes, it does hurt. Good question. Hurts more, but um, keep keep money in the parent's name if you can. Yes, sounds or like a good plan. in the parent's name. Okay, sounds good. All right. So now your next question, Amy asks: I've been waitlisted at five schools. Oh, how many should I stay on? Is there anything I can do to improve my chances? Ah, uh, so the ultimate waitlist question, which we did touch on. Um, two shows ago, and so that might be something for people to um, listen to who have questions about wait lists. Um, Amy, I'm sure it's disappointing to get that many wait lists. Um, I think that when students get multiple wait list offers, the knee-jerk reaction is to accept them all. And my attitude here is that unless you would truly be prepared to strongly consider each one, um, at this stage of the game, I would encourage you to pare it down. The likelihood is, depending on how selective the schools are, right? So if you've been waitlisted at five highly selective schools, the chances are just not that good that anything's going to happen on the wait list. So the first thing I really would encourage any student to do is to focus on where you got in and be excited about one of those (laughs) options and accept one of those options. Because the other thing about wait lists is that nothing's happening with those generally until after May 1. Rarely does it occur that as decisions or acceptances start coming in from the students accepting offers of admission, that a school could start to say, oh, we're not even coming close to making our numbers. And so in those cases, they might go to the wait list sooner than that. Mm-hmm. But most schools are waiting until their, their students' decisions come in. And there, any wait list movement is going to happen post May 1, typically. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I mean, I can't tell you not to stay on all five, but I could say that I think it adds such a huge layer of uncertainty and I'm not sure it's really worth your time. So what I would encourage you to do is to remain on the wait list at maybe, maybe just one, the one that you really love more than the one you decide to deposit at. Um, and then just say a polite no to the rest. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of what you can do to improve your chances, certainly read what the school is telling you about the wait list. Um, there usually isn't so much information provided, but at a lot of schools, the wait list is not ranked. 
And what they're going to do is use it to fill holes in the class. Um, and again, we talked about that uh, quite a bit in our um, in an, a recent episode we did on the wait list. Um, but I think things that students can do, certainly return the, you know, whether it's an email or a physical card that you pop in the mail, you're going to want to let them know, yes, I want to stay on the wait list. And then I would send them a short, operative word here, short letter, (laughs) sort of detailing your desire to remain on the wait, you know, your interest in attending this school. So what does short mean? No more than three paragraphs. Mm -hmm. It should really be kind of an update on anything that's happened since you submitted your application. So if there is anything new, you won a new award, you uh, achieved a certain level of success in a class, you, you know, something new has happened. Mm And um, you want to update them on that. And then in closing, if you are sure you would attend, if you are taken off the wait list, I would say that, um, mm-hmm. you know, that you are prepared to, to attend should they give you that call. Um, but beyond that, there really isn't a whole lot more that you can do other than pick a school that admitted you, fall in love with that, and deposit there <laughs> while you wait to hear back from your waitlist schools. And certainly let the other schools know that have accepted you that you know you're not going to attend. Tell them no so that other students who are also sitting on a waitlist for those schools right. you know, might abs- actually have an opportunity to attend. <laughs> All right. We have time for one more question before we go to the break. All right. All right. And this one comes to us from Kelly who says, I'm planning on borrowing a PLUS loan to pay for my daughter's college. Can my ex-husband also borrow, even though only my information is on the FAFSA? Oh, great question. Okay, so the PLUS loan is a federal loan that you get from the government that can be borrowed by a parent on behalf of a student, of a dependent undergraduate student. So the answer is yes, your ex-husband any parent can borrow a PLUS loan on behalf of a student, even if their information was not provided on the FAFSA. And it actually can even be a step-parent. So it could be a stepmother, stepfather, mother, father, um, anyone can, regardless of whether or not they provided information on the FAFSA. And essentially, if he didn't provide information on the FAFSA, the school might ask him for a little more information just to verify his citizenship status and a couple other questions before they certify a PLUS loan for him. But definitely, yes, an ex-husband, any parent can borrow a PLUS loan on behalf of a student. All right. Well, I lied. We have room for ah. one more question. So <laughs> I was quick. All right. Yes, I love All it. All right. Here's one more. All right. Let's see. I'm going to try to find a quick one for you. Um, <clears throat> oh, let's see. Does applying through early admission or early decision programs increase one's chances of admission? This is from Armin. Well, Armin, the, que- the answer is it can. Um, I think it doesn't increase the chances as much as people want to imagine. So early decision is binding, which means you are committing to attending that school if you are admitted in the early round. And for that reason, early decision tends to increase the chances the greatest just because you're committing to that school. Mm-hmm. Whereas early action, any school, any program that where you're applying early that does not require you to give them an answer or um, before May 1, you know, there's really no incentive for them to take you beyond that they think you look like one of the very best applicant in their pool. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but I will say that more and more we are seeing that colleges are doing, a, you know, they are admitting more students in their early rounds. So, 
I, I'm very much on the fence about whether how much early action really does help, especially at the most selective levels. Um, but early decision can be a good option if you can afford to take it, if you're ready right. to commit and you, you know, you don't need to be able to negotiate a financial aid package. Right. Um, but yes, um, they can give you a, a little bit of a boost in, in the process. So, great. Um, all right. So we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we are going to get to more of your questions. So please do not go away. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says, yes. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. Are you finding your frequency? It can be described as that space between failure and success. It's the future of digital media. It's finding your voice. It's engaging topics, content, and ideas. Jeff and Ryan discuss the digital media space and all of its aspects. It's about making the mistakes, taking the chances, summoning the intestinal fortitude to step out of your comfort zone, and discovering what you can accomplish when you decide to try, decide to learn, decide that you have something to say, and find your frequency. Fridays at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. What defines your success? Is it success in your business? Success in your personal life? Is it more money? Is it meaningful relationships? How about your passion? Listen for Taking Care of Business with host David Wallach. David's guests share their challenges and what they did to overcome them. What if you can let your passion for success lead you to your success? Taking Care of Business is broadcast live every Tuesday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time and 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back, everybody. We are answering your listener questions. And for anyone who's listening and saying, hey, I have some questions, um, well, go ahead and send them to us. 
Our email address is gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Again, it's gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Uh, all right, Kathy, we ended on one of my questions, so we're going to start right. with one of yours. This comes okay. from Depika, De- who asks, do I have to take the health insurance that the college offers if my student is already covered under our policy? Ah, that's a good question. And as people are now making deposits at schools, now they're starting to get wrapped up in the details of actually enrolling at a college, right? All the things that have to be taken care of. Um, So the answer is um, that, no, you don't have to take the college's health insurance. Um, You want to investigate your own insurance, um, you know, obviously figure out whether it's it's going to cost you more to keep your student on your plan. Usually that's not the case if you have other dependents on your plan anyway. Um, but um, So you want to make sure it makes sense from a cost perspective, and then you also want to check and see what kind of coverage your student will have, especially if they're going far away from, from where your, their regular doctors are. So, um, so you certainly don't have to take the college's health insurance plan, but one word of caution, which is that most colleges do require students that live in the dorms to have health insurance. Um, And uh, the way they sometimes make sure that happens, and colleges do this in different ways, but one of the ways they do it is to enroll everyone in the college's plan and bill you for it, um, and then give you a date by which you have to opt out of their plan. Mm-hmm. And that that communication usually is going to your student to say, if you don't need our health insurance, opt out by X date. And generally, it's a very hard deadline. And if you don't opt out by that date, you are you are going to end up paying for insurance that you don't actually need. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so that's an annual process. So every year, um, they're going to ask you about health insurance. They're either going to let you opt in or they're going to opt you in and then make you opt out. Um, and so they... they do that every year, so make sure you're communicating with your student about any emails they're getting. I will say the the college where my daughter attended, we got very little mail at home, but the one piece of mail we got every summer was the letter that said, have you opted out of your health insurance? <laughs> yes, <laughs> so that you sure made sure. sure. Yeah. yeah. But can't guarantee that you're going to get a piece of mail, so make sure your student is reading their college email um, and and knowing how to opt out. It's usually it usually means you have to provide your own insurance information and you know a policy number and that sort of thing right. and then you can opt out. So right, got it. Okay, so that's really good information, especially for people who are um, taking care of all the paperwork of getting enrolled right now. So yeah. um, all right, uh, all right. So I've got a couple for you that are kind of related. So. So Stacy asks, how important are AP classes in high school? And then Carolee asks, what's the right number of AP classes admission officers like to see that a student has taken in high school? Hmm. So the answer here is that there is no right number and um, they can be important and they can be completely unimportant. So... <laughs> Let's start with the fact that not all schools offer AP. So if your student attends a school without AP classes, then colleges are not going to expect to see AP classes. Um, The second thing is that not all students should be taking AP classes. Um, This, especially if you live in an area where there's a lot of pressure and talk and intense scrutiny around the college process, Mm -hmm. you might be under the impression that if your child doesn't take AP classes, they're not going to go to college. And I can divest you of that impression immediately and tell you that really there are not a ton of schools who expect to see APs on a student's 
transcript. It's really not that many. It just happens to be the schools that everybody talks about. <laughs> um, but, you know, for the most part, colleges are very happy with a regular level college prep curriculum. Um, they still want to see the students broadly educated. They still love to see them go above and beyond what the high school requires in terms of graduation. But that does not mean that they must take honors or that they must do APs. That is simply not a requirement. The more selective you get, the more the colleges do expect to see some type of higher level coursework, whether it's AP or International Baccalaureate, to name a couple of the programs that are available at some high schools. Um, But there is no, you know, expectation that you could say all colleges want to see this because Mm -hmm. it's just not true. And there is no number. I wish I could give you a magic number. There is no magic number. So um, a good rule of thumb if you're looking at the most selective levels is that if your child attends a school that offers APs is that you want to have gone to the AP level in all five major subject areas by the time you graduate. So that means math, science, English, history, and foreign language. Mm -hmm. And some students might do more than one AP in each area before they graduate, um, but not all will. And um, some won't go to the AP level in all five major areas. If you want to be very competitive at the most competitive level or most selective level, then you're going to want to have done that. But even there, I can't say, oh, you need X number of APs to really be competitive because it just doesn't work that way. And Mm -hmm. there are even some high schools that maybe only offer three APs, in which case, if you have all three, you might have the the most rigorous curriculum you could have taken Mm -hmm. um, versus the kid who only has three APs and the high school offers 20 of them, right? So... There's no number. Sorry. I wish I could give it to you, but I cannot do it. Um, It is not a thing. Um, All right. Kathy, Dan writes to us, my son just found out he's going to grad school next fall. What happens to the loans that he borrowed in undergrad? Does he have to start paying on them? Uh Congratulations, Dan. (laughs) Or congratulations to your son (laughs) for Mm -hmm. going on to grad school. Um, so the loans that he borrowed in undergrad, for the most part, so let's first talk federal loans. Um, federal loans can be deferred while he's in graduate school, so he does not have to pay on those loans. But I would make sure to caution him that any of the loans that are unsubsidized will still have interest accruing. Um, and so he'll want to have at least signed into his loan servicer to see the loans, to see how much interest is outstanding. And if he can pay interest as it accrues, that's a good idea. Um, if I could say one thing that I hear most often from people who are struggling to repay their loans, um, it's that I didn't realize they were continuing to grow while I put them in deferment. So. Mm. Um, really understand which loans, if you have federal loans, um, which ones are unsubsidized. And then if you have subsidized federal loans, those are interest-free while you defer them in graduate school. And just to clarify, even if your loans are not in repayment, even if you're in deferment, you can always make a payment on them. It's just that you're not in repayment. You're just going to make a payment that's a prepayment. Um, And then if you've got private loans, you really do want to pay attention to those because they are all unsubsidized. Some of them have, depending on what you borrowed, you might have a variable interest rate or you might have a fixed interest rate. But if it's a variable rate, you're certainly going to want to be paying attention to whether the rate's going up while he's in graduate school because certainly interest rates, it looks like, are on their way up. Um, 
And then again, paying attention to how much interest is accruing. Um, And the way it usually works is that the interest will accrue and then it gets added to the principal right before you go back into repayment. Um, So if you pay it as it accrues, then it never, then you never get charged interest on interest. Hmm. Oh, I mean, that's a benefit, right? Yeah, exactly. And, you know, if he's working part-time while he's in grad school or if he has any extra money, um, it's just good not to ignore the loans. Even though he doesn't have to pay on them, my advice is just don't ignore them because then you'll be surprised in two or three years when he's done with grad school how much they've grown. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. And actually, um, next week's episode, we're going to be talking about understanding your loan options. So for those of you who are worried about, well, gee, we haven't even taken out loans yet. um, I think that could be a really beneficial show to check in and listen in on um, since a lot of people are going to have to take loans. Yes. All right. Well, your next question is, Brian asks, what additional activities are Ivy League schools looking for on an applicant's resume? So this question is sort of like asking what's the right number of AP classes, right? There is, yeah. there is, again, there's no answer to this. There is no magic bullet. There is no, well, you need to have this, this, and this, and then you are good, right? Um, so I will refer back to, I mentioned it a little earlier in the show, but I we did a show um, back in July about evaluating your chances of getting into an Ivy League institution. And um, we have certainly talked on the show before about developing a distinguishing excellence and some of the things that can make a real difference at that level. But I do have an ongoing blog series on the Huffington Post. Um, the first blog went up last week on Thursday, and it's called Who Gets Into Harvard? Um, and that's really about kind of what the expectations are from the perspective of the classes and the grades earned. Um, and this week's is going to be all about testing, test scores, testing expectations. Um, and there will be one about extracurricular activities and another about developing and distinguishing excellence. Um, so I would encourage you to check those out. But what I would say is that it's really about students having a particular area that they love and they're really passionate about and finding a lot of ways to get involved in that area. That's going to tend to really help a student stand out um, mm-hmm. more than anything. And there, that could be just about anything. Um, but it needs to be deep. It needs to be, and the student needs to be doing a lot of things in that area would be okay. what I would say there. All right. Um, okay. So let me just do a quick check here. Yeah. All right. So we have one last finance question for you today, Kathy. And this comes from Agnes, who says, um, or who asks, we're going on a bunch of college visits over March spring break. Are there any financial questions we can ask while we're touring colleges? All right. Of course there are. There are always questions you can ask. And you can ask these. um, I wouldn't advise... Well, you can ask some questions of a tour guide, but if you want real official financial answers, yes. you should you should probably ask an actual admissions staff person, whether that's in an admissions information session, or you might even, depending on your questions, um, you might even schedule an appointment with the financial aid office. But most of the time, admissions can answer your questions. Um, so I think the biggest and most important one is about merit scholarships. So you want to ask, is this a college that offers merit scholarships? And then if you can't, and, and I would do your research on the website first, but if you can't find any information about what they offer, um, it's perfectly fine to ask the question, you know, do you offer them and what's the profile of a student who might receive a merit scholarship at your school? Because that, that answer varies from school to school depending on mm-hmm. how selective they are. Um, 
You can also ask, you know, if your student is interested in working on campus, um, you could ask about how easy it is to find on-campus jobs um, because schools are different that way. Or actually related to that, um, is it a school where if you can't find an on-campus job, it's easy to work off-campus? You could ask that of a tour guide. You might get a sense of what's happening, but I think you do want the official party line from an admissions person as well. Um, Mm -hmm. So asking questions about working if your student is interested in that. Um, And then also maybe if you're really trying to get into the detail, you can ask about room and board options because that's that is related to cost, right? And schools have different policies about how flexible their board plans are and what different kinds of living arrangements they have. Um, so, you know, you can ask questions about that as well if you're trying to get a sense of how much variability there might be there um, yep. over the course of four years. Okay, awesome. Um, I think we have time for one more question for me or... or Okay, well, and actually this one is related to visits too. So Elaine asks, when are you supposed to make appointments to visit schools? And Linda Lee asks, how do you get the most out of an out-of-state visit? So talk about visits. (laughs) Sure. So I'm actually going to punt a little bit on this one um, in in that we have done a number of shows. Um, So back, way back when, early on in this shows, um, so we've been around for two Two years now, but back in March, uh, t- on March 12th, 2015, um, in J- on January 28th of 2016, and on April 7th of 2016, we did shows that um, included segments on college visits, planning visits, making the most of the visit while you're there, digging below the surface, you know, going kind of beyond the info session and the tour to, to find out a little more. So I would encourage you to go back and check those archives for some great information about visits. Um, The only other thing I would say is that for the most part, you're going to um, go to the school's websites. That's where the planning process typically begins and often ends. You just kind of will do everything right from there. Occasionally, they might want you to call um, to register for something, but for the most part, it happens online. But that's definitely the place to start. Okay. All right. So, um, just a couple of quick things that I did want to mention here. Um, I wanted to thank you. Thanks for being here today. I really appreciate it, <laughs> Kathy. Here. Um, I did want to mention that we are loving your questions and would love to get more of them and answer more of them. So, if you have them, send them to us, gettingin.voiceamerica.gmail.com. Next week, Ian is here. He's going to be hosting, I think it's a particularly great show. I mentioned already they're going to be talking about understanding your loan options. I'm also going to be talking about why applying to more highly selective schools to more of them, right? So why applying to all of them doesn't increase your odds of getting into one of them. Um, And then the other thing uh, we'll be talking about is gaming the system, you know, kind of what that means and what we think about it. And I think you could probably guess that we don't think it's a particularly good idea. So just, um, but I would tune in. I think there's going to be some interesting stuff next week. I've already mentioned and highlighted our archives. There is so much good stuff in there. Um, We have this great blog that's free that you can subscribe to. Um, Check out my Huffington Post series. Uh, Lots of other great ways, free ways to interact with College Coach. Uh, Our website's at getintocollege.com. We have that blog I just mentioned, blog.getintocollege.com. We're on Pinterest. We're on LinkedIn. Um, And you can sign up and get free downloads of this show on iTunes. And if you would rate the show while you're there, we would really appreciate it. Um, And don't forget, we're here every Thursday, 4 p.m. Eastern and 1 p.m. Pacific.
Thank you for tuning in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. Please join us again next Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.